This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. A quick note before the show, this podcast contains explicit language. Well, by my math, I think I listened to maybe 16 hours of Green Day leading up to this taping. <laughs> and I don't know if you guys had the same reaction, Dawood Tyler Amin and Stephen Thompson, uh, but it felt pretty good to me. I mean, 16 hours of any band, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's a fair bit of time. It is, but I, it's, I don't know. It could, I could see it feeling really punishing. And, and for some reason, they rarely did anything that was just flat out embarrassing. They came no. close. <laughs> yeah. There were some weird swings. Well, we'll talk more about this, but big time for Green Day. They just dropped a new album called Saviors. It is coming at the same time as the 30th anniversary of Dookie uh, and the 20th anniversary of American Idiot, this confluence of events. So it it felt like the, the right time to look back at the legacy of Green Day and talk about why we still love this band so much. But let's start by going back to 1994 when Dookie, uh, that album, was released. I'll sit around and watch the tube, but nothing's on. I changed the channels for an hour So Dookie comes out in 1994. There's so much that we can say and talk about with this album. But let's start with just what it sounded like hearing this record come out against the landscape of 1994. Well, I think, first of all, it was a huge moment popularizing the sound of pop punk. You know, the, the like big guitars, like the, a lot of the punk energy, but in very concise and very, very, very catchy songs that hit the brain like pop music. And I think one of the things that really stood out, revisiting Dookie for the first time in a while, other than hearing their songs pop up on the radio, because those songs yeah. are, have never yeah. really gone away. But one of the things that hit me listening to that album through for the first time in a long time, one is how ageless the production is. This album could have come out really at any point in the last 30 years, I think, production-wise. The other thing that jumps out is that those lyrics are universal. Yeah, You can feel that way at 10, as Daoud was when I heard it for the first time. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can hear that at 22, as I was when I heard it for the first time. And I have felt that way for the 30 years ever since. I'm tired. I'm bored. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing on TV. I'm, I'm yeah. frustrated. I'm understimulated. I'm overstimulated. Somehow they, those two things sound, feel the same. That stuff has never really gone away. And I think that's one reason that this band has, has really stuck around and, is, and has never really left the public's imagination. Talking about Dookie is kind of like talking about The Matrix in some ways, where it's just like, it's so big. It's so it's yeah. almost too big to fit in the frame, and your yeah. mind kind of throttles. You don't really know what to say about it. Yeah. I will say it's influence thinking about it now on the sort of visibility of punk in the 90s. It kind of cuts both ways. Obviously, there are a lot of other bands 
who probably owe their major label deals yeah. and their success and visibility to the success of this album. On the other hand, there's probably a lot of people who were exposed to punk by way of this record and and this record's children and maybe didn't feel the need to dig any deeper, maybe didn't push in the other direction. For some people, Dookie might have felt like the whole iceberg rather than the tip oh, of it. It was yeah. certainly true of me at, at 10 years old. All yeah. I knew was that like, if you wanted to like, be in the popular girl conversations, then you had to know about this record. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can talk about Dookie, though, without thinking about it in the context of how big grunge was. Mm-hmm. At the top of 1994, Kurt Cobain would die later in the spring of 1994, but at the top of 1994, Grunge is raging. It is, it is the defining sound of that time. And it was so angry and so dark and... And dreary. Uh, and dreary and just everything about it was just, ugh. You know, I loved it. But it was, it was pretty grim. And then Green Day comes along and it is the perfect counter sort of argument or counter reply to that sound. What Dookie said and what Green Day said to everyone who heard it was, you can be uh, full of angst and uh, depression and, you know, you, you can be confused and lost and bored and all of these horrible things, but you can still rock really hard and have a great time <laughs> and, and life can still be pretty great. about the the Rosetta Stone of early 90s rock music. We often talk about Nevermind by Nirvana. And the thing about that record is you can derive from it a number of different lessons. You can derive from that record the lesson that like what people want is angst or mumbled vocals or just like a certain amount of nihilism, but also you could derive from that record that what people want is heavier music that is still pop music, hmm. that is still catchy. Nirvana was heavily influenced by the Pixies. You know, those songs are extremely rock-solid, sturdy pop frameworks with some of that other stuff kind of laid across the top of it. And, and so I think that Green Day and grunge aren't even necessarily miles apart. Green Day is just kind of applying different lessons from what people liked about about grunge music. And and as the 90s progressed, you got more this sort of copy of a copy of a copy of a copy where a lot of bands were taking from grunge a certain amount of kind of self-parodic misery and Mm self-flagellation. 
in arrangements that got kind of soupier and more diffuse and less interesting. Mm. But really, I, I think you can think of Green Day not even as a reaction to grunge, but as a cousin of grunge. Hmm. Listening to Longview, which we started the show with, it, it's one of those things, you, you really do hear the power of the trio in that as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Um, Mike Durant doing that melodic walking bass. Just one of those... So bass he is forward. The, he is yeah. the MVP of that song. Yeah, yeah, he really is. And Trey Cool exercising some rare restraint on the drums with that tom beat <laughs> that just kind of feels like it keeps piling up over the course of the verses. Um, obviously, Nirvana was a trio too, but they're wielding those powers to sort of different effect. Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I think the, the the distinction I'm I'm hearing, maybe a, calling them cousins of grunge, maybe that's a more accurate way of putting it as, a, as opposed to them saying that they're just wildly different, is that there's no light in grunge to me, and there's a lot mm. of light in this music. You listen to a song like Basket Case that was on Dookie. Oh my gosh. Do you have the time to listen to me whine? About nothing and everything all at once I am one of those melodramatic fools Neurotic to the bone, no doubt about it Sometimes I give myself the creeps Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me it all keeps setting up I think I'm cracking up And I'm just paranoid I watch my stuff I mean, so much lift in the idea of um, I am so depressed but there's just so much lift in this, right? I'm a, I'm a mess, but I have a sense of humor. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And that oh, was totally... Me- and I don't... Yeah, we don't need to go deep into its comparisons to grunge, but I think it is one of the things that made this sound so distinctive. And also, to your point, yeah, very bass-forward. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard anything quite like this at the time. I, you know, we, we would also get Weezer's Blue album that had sort of a very similar sound, like if you listen to Only in Dreams, that song from Weezer, it has it's very bass-forward as well. But then you get these harmonies that they're stacking in this song, in songs like this, just insanely catchy. It's not a surprise that this record worked, even though the name, <laughs> even though the name means poop. <laughs> I guess another thing that I think of when I listen to songs like this and to this record that, that makes it so distinctive for that time is they were taking the tiniest ideas and blowing them up to stadium size, <laughs> right? You know, like... You, you talk about, let's say, like hair metal in the 90s with its just comical hyper-masculinity and, and, and then you get to grunge and, you know, it's just so dark and, and then you get to this kind of garage rock and it's like, I, I've heard it called snot rock, I've heard it called <laughs> punk, I've heard it called punk pop. To me, it's nerd rock mm-hmm. because it is taking super nerdy small ideas and, and just blowing them up to, you know, arena size. Well, and taking big feelings. Yeah. The other thing, and I don't mean to be too glib about it, but, you know, alcohol and drugs are a, a part of this story that's sort of brewing yeah. in, in mm-hmm. the background. Um, and it's one of the big differences, I think, that you can point to now looking at what Weezer was doing at the time and what Green Day was doing, is that the, the sort of like slacker, depressive energy had that uh, aspect to it. Whereas like Whatever Rivers Cuomo was sad about, his vices kind of lay elsewhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, and and also uh, a lot of self-loathing in so much of this music. And, and I don't know that you ever really hear that in something like Weezer, really. 
Um, I ooh, you do. Ooh. I don't know. I think I think Pinkerton is a deeply mm-hmm. self-flagellating album. Yeah, yeah. It's worth noting that this was not Green Day's first album. This was right. actually their their third album. Uh, they had been around for a minute before this came out. The first one was called Thirty Nine Smooth. That came out in nineteen ninety, and then nineteen ninety one. Uh, they had uh, the record called Kerplunk that actually included uh, an early version of Welcome to Paradise that ended up on uh, Dookie. Hard to tell uh, the difference between this recording and the one they made for Dookie. Uh, oh, it's 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 it there. A lot. It gets yeah. shinier though. That shinier. Major label production kicks yeah. all these songs up a notch for sure. But you hear a lot of the roots and the foundation of that sound. The thing that I always think of uh, listening back to these records is um, if you ever go back and watch early Mitch Hedberg stand-up from before oh, he had wow. you know his big specials, it's pretty arresting because it's a lot of the same jokes that would become his like all-timers but he hasn't really figured out his delivery yet Mm. his posture on stage is different he doesn't have like he's not doing the like hair in the face thing he doesn't have the like sunglasses and doors the whole tone and timbre of his you know and the rhythm of his voice is different and it's like it's almost there you can see the pieces are kind of almost in place and that it would just take a a, a couple of tweaks before he hit the thing that people found so appealing about him and it's sort of the same thing here i mean 39 smooth is a little bit more like that that's the one where you're you're sort of like okay this is something in its sort of rawest form kerplunk is actually quite catchy and accessible but it's sort of lacking the the polish but the other reason that um i think it's important to address these early records is because I always want to sort of push back on the kind of myth-making that surrounds people when they seem mm. to sort of break through mm-hmm. and show up fully formed. Yep. And everybody comes from somewhere. And Green Day certainly came from somewhere. And I, it's, I think I mean it in two senses. One is that they came from, you know, an earlier place where they didn't have their, you know, sort of, I don't want to say formula, but um, their sort of working relationship, uh, you know, their sort of understanding of how to use their sound totally sorted out. But they also came from a real place. They were part of this scene in the East Bay, and Kerplunk was one of the flagship releases on Lookout Records, this Bay Area punk label that was hugely influential. It put out the one record by Operation Ivy, mm-hmm. this really influential ska punk band that's um, one of those bands like Rites of Spring that just like, they're not together very long, they don't record very much, but in their short time together, they basically like invent a subgenre. All those early amazing Ted Leo records yeah. were Lookout records. Mm. The Donnas were on Lookout. Mm-hmm. Pansy Division, one yeah. of the early, you know, pioneering queer punk bands when that was still a pretty out there thing to be. And so Kerplunk kind of becomes sort of the bleach to Dookie's Nevermind, um, yeah. where it's, uh, once they hit, a bunch of people sort of go back and say like, oh, where did these guys come from? I want to find out a little more. Yeah. 
Well, it's interesting you bring that up because one of the thoughts I had when I was listening to some of this early stuff and listening to this band progress over the decades is, do we still see that? Do we still see bands ramping up like this? It certainly feels anyway like the narrative, as you say, Dawood, that gets pushed more often than not now is that this band comes out fully formed and they put out maybe two amazing records and then that's it, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I noticed with this is... um, how the whole singles release cycle has changed over the decades. Like, the first anyone heard of this album, Dookie, for example, is when Dookie came out. Uh (laughs) All the singles from that record came out after the album Mm -hmm. was already released, and now we have this whole cycle of, well, we we tease an album for months leading up to it with new singles and stuff like that. Yeah, that process kind of got pulled all the way inside out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there there certainly are many examples in the early 90s of of ramp-ups to releases and singles that came out before albums. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit came out before Nevermind did. Alive came out before 10 by by Pearl Jam. But yeah, you don't have as much of a long wind-up the way you do now. Yeah. We have to take a break, uh, but when we come back, we're going to have more great tunes for everybody. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Dive into the chilling new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, the riveting adaptation of the acclaimed true crime book. Based on shocking true events, Under the Bridge tells the haunting story of a murder that lays bare a small community's darkest secrets. Go deep into the hidden world of the town's tormented teenagers as detectives race to solve the sinister crime. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. The right agent can make or break your home search. That's why Homes.com provides an agent directory that details each agent's experience, so you can find the right one and ultimately the right home. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to hit every single album and go deep on every single album. <laughs> there's, there's less to say about some of the albums uh, and, that and follow. So we'll, we'll try to move as quickly as we can. Um, so that came out in 1994. 1995, there's a lot of pressure on the band to follow up Dookie with a new record. So they drop Insomniac uh, in the fall of 1995. <laughs> Having trouble trying to sleep I'm counting shit but running out As time ticks by Still I try No rest for cross shops in my mind On my own, here we go Feel like they're gonna bleed Try 
might scroll My mouth is dry My face is numb Fucked up and spawned out in my room On my own, here we go That pop, that snare pop Oh, that feels so good I can confirm from experience that Brain Stew is a song that adolescent boys really love to sit around and slowly headbang to You did your own research I, it's, Somebody had to do it For a little bit of context, both Armstrong and Trey Cool, they got married they became dads for the first time between Dookie and this record coming out They were all of like 23 years old like During the so. long wait between these two records One came out in 94, the other came out in 95 You're late, they've become dads um, and I guess I mention as much because I feel like when you listen to this record, even though they are still very, very young, and it still has a lot of the play of Dookie in some of their music, I, I feel like there's just this thread of seriousness that starts to creep into this music a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also, I mean, it's, I don't think it's any secret that Brains Do is a song about meth. And that song, when they played it on MTV, it would bleed right into the song Jaded. which is much faster, kind of like D-beat, you know, a hardcore sounding song. And um, together, the tempos of those songs sort of mimic the like highs and lows of meth usage. So yeah, there's this, uh, there's a little bit of a dark edge, you know, creeping in in a more explicit way. And, and mental health too. I felt like that was a, another sort of recurring theme sure, throughout this. Yeah. Although maybe that's implicit in the, in the, in the addiction. That's... I'm still a mess, but I have less of a sense of humor about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I remember how Insomniac was received, and, and at the time, it was pretty widely viewed as, like, Dookie, D-E-U-X. Like, it's just... It's just part a, two. Part yeah, two. Part, yeah, part two. That it's, that it's a little bit of a retread, that it sounds the same, it's kind of structured the same in terms of... You know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk, as, as these albums progress, about what is the ideal dosage for a Green Day album. How like Because they've put out records, um, you know, that are, like... 12 songs in 26 minutes, and mm-hmm. they've put out these more epic, they put out a trilogy, they put out, you know, like longer form records. Uh, uh, a rock opera, even. A, a rock mm-hmm. opera, one might say. And this record is still very contained, It's and it's still f- using a lot of those pop-punk formulas, and people really thought of it at the time, a lot of people did, as a, as a retread. And I, I don't think it is. I think it's expanding, as you guys have discussed, on the themes of Dookie and kind of fanning out a little bit. I love the way you put that, Dowd, that uh, I'm still a mess, but my sense of humor is starting to fade a little bit. I don't, I'm not, it, it's not as what funny is, as What it is truer to, to the aging process than that? I mean, but that's the thing is that at, at any point in this band's discography, you can sort of like put your finger on the globe to stop it spinning and look at a band that is obviously like they, they know where they came from and they have a little bit of momentum to them. But mm-hmm. like at any point you could say like, this could have been their last gasp. And this could have been it. Like, it it could have been like they had a gigantic breakout album, then another one that was seen as maybe a little bit of a a commercial disappointment, had like one or two singles that people liked, and then they could have just disappeared. And so the, the, the story of that longevity and the story of how they sort of continue to change in subtle ways, even if, you know, they're, they never take a gigantic wild genre swing is like, that's maybe the most striking thing about listening to this entire discography to me. But they did, I think, play around with genre a good bit. And I think you start to really hear that when we get to 1997, when they dropped Nimrod.
sort of a stray cat strut <laughs> vibe to this, and it opens up with that fiddle. Uh, this song called Hitchin' a Ride uh, from Nimrod. And this song isn't even as wild as some of the tracks get. Like, this is a, this sort of curious instrumental track that they included called Last Ride End. There's like strings, there's horns, there's like a marimba. It has this loungy feel to it. A little bit it. of it, like a surfy quality crossed with yeah. when Spinal Tap did its blues jazz odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> jazz odyssey. Yeah, I always had a, a soft spot for Redundant, which is uh, a song that I could kind of see working as a show tune. It's, um, I think of it now like Gwen Stefani's The Sweet Escape. It's a song that like, if you arranged it a little differently, it could be a, a song from you know like the 50s or 60s. sort of wistful side of the band that we hadn't really quite seen yet. Well, and we've talked about Nimrod for a little while now and have not mentioned Good Riddance, parentheses, Time of Your Life, the 17th song on this 18-track <laughs> album. Wow, you know, Anytime you're looking at the lifespan of a very, very long-running band, you can find a fulcrum where that band might have faded into oblivion, but for some pivotal song that allowed them to extend their career indefinitely. Another turning point, a fork stuck in the road. Time grabs you by the rest, directs you where to go. So make the best of this test and don't ask why. It's not a question but a lesson learned in time. It's something unpredictable, but in the end is right. I hope you had the time of your life. This song suddenly became in its own way a standard. Mm-hmm. And it's a song that doesn't sound exactly like other Green Day songs while still sounding like Green Day. Yeah. And so this was a song that really marked this band as having a longer shelf life than it might have seemed like they were going to have given the trajectory that they went on from Dookie to Insomniac to Nimrod. And given the way that the sound of pop music was really going to change in a violent fashion over the next couple of years, we're uh, headed for some very volatile years. Yeah, we're, this is coming out amid new metal. Yeah. Like, I remember hearing this and thinking, I never thought I'd feel so sentimental listening to, to Green Day that this sort of, this whole vibe could come from this band that had been these sort of goofball hooligans <laughs> up until this point to me, you know? 
It's that song is a, it was a great gift to not very good guitarists around the world, <laughs> and a, a, a burden to anybody who who had to be around. Who, who them. dated them? I sorry, it's <laughs> I don't want to keep telling on myself, but it, it's, that's the truth. Well, you know, so Armstrong said at the time when this record came out that the band that the, the band members were sort of sick of who they'd become at that mm-hmm. point, and so they find themselves on Nimrod trying these different sounds they they do get more wistful and reflective and sentimental i think armstrong you know he reflects on fatherhood a lot the trappings of fame he he talks about his addiction on this record one thought i had when i listened back to this is you know I, hindsight is 2020 and everything uh, a couple thoughts one i had was we're watching this band grow up in real time mm-hmm. that was certainly happening uh, but the other thought i had was i i'm not sure we were ready yet for our bands to contain multitudes. Mm, interesting. You know, like that, the bar was set at a different place back then than it is now. Now, genres barely even exist anymore when right. you listen to some music, right? But this was really, really unusual to hear something like this come out then. Well, yeah, and you, you ran into the part of the maturation project process of any artist where you are battling between what your fans want to hear and what you the music you want to be making. And so balancing that against the commercial impulse to keep regenerating the same hits over and over again, I think they handled that better than most artists of their of their time. Yeah. It is funny to think about this. It's sort of it feels almost like a relic of the CD era where you just mm-hmm. you, you you knew that people were going to buy uh, a whole album off of the strength of a single. And mm-hmm. so you could sneak in some things that sure. were maybe a little bit, you know, off the beaten path, you know, maybe things that were there just like mostly as a joke or that felt like, you know, within their context, a little bit transgressive. You go searching through the deep cuts of of, of records when we're sort of inching towards the peak of the CD era, then you, you, you see a, a couple of things like this. But yeah, looking back now, you look at the records they made in the late 90s and, and in 2000, and it starts to become less surprising that what they were heading toward was a rock opera. <laughs> well, the seeds I, are there. Yeah, yeah, I think when you listen to Warning, the album that came out in 2000, just a few years after Nimrod, I think the thing that's most notable about Warning in retrospect is, yeah, you can, you can hear what they're, they're teeing themselves up for. Virginia was a lot lizard from FLA She had a compound fracture in the trunk It started when she ran away Thumbs down on the interstate She inched a ride to misery This is The Doors' Whiskey Bar, uh, The Decemberist Mariner's Revenge Maybe like a cabaret outtake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it is very theatrical. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. It, no, it's, I mean, you. this record you get some acoustic guitars and harmonica and organ and accordion and strings, all that starting to sneak in. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it's really indicative of them trying to stretch themselves. Yeah, and as you alluded to, Daoud, you're getting the foundation of American Idiot. You're, you're starting to see their different interests cohering. You're also hearing them taking on more personas and not mm. everything is not 
everything is not from a teenager's diary. Right, yeah. And and that's really starting to come through here. I mean, looking, it's it's funny, you know, anytime we're revisiting these these albums, it's easy to kind of go to the Wikipedia page and kind of look at critical reception and what were people saying. Mm-hmm. And I see here that a young buck by the name of Stephen Thompson writing in the <laughs> AV Club <laughs> said, Green Day has never made a record so slick and musically mature. Wow. I don't, oh, you're I don't, quoting yourself, Stephen. <laughs> That's a new low, <laughs> even for you. I, it is nice to be reminded of what I thought of things. Yeah, uh, no, no, it, it, it is interesting because the, what you think of things obviously changes and evolves. And, you know, how, how many albums have I heard over the years that I thought, God, that sucks. And then I'll go back and listen to it and realize, oh, wow, I was oh, totally whoops, missing this. Right. This was, yeah, you know, I, I do think that there were some people who thought that Warning was maybe the beginning of, of a band that was starting to lose its own thread a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it was a mixed bag. Again, it's music is changing so rapidly at this point, right? right? Yeah. It's like, you know, the what pop even is is starting to become a, a bigger and bigger question. Hip-hop is, you know, very much becoming like the dominant pop form. There's the Family Values Tour and everything that it represents, you know, <laughs> yeah. like n- new metal becoming a new kind of like barometer of cool. And so them making these, you know, kind of folky theatrical choices, uh, even in some of the more explicit references, like the title track from Warning is a song that sounds a lot like the Kinks picture book. Mm-hmm. It's a song I really like, but it, it's like the, 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 the homage is like right there on the surface. This is a public service announcement, this is only a test. Emergency evacuation protest. May impair your ability to operate machinery. Can't quite tell just what it means to me. I mean, if it weren't for Armstrong's voice, this would sound like uh, the theme to a 90s sitcom to me. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, a, a thing I want to shout out there, though, and it, it's, you know, it, it's come up in some of what we've listened to already, is I really, really appreciate that Mike Dernst's backing vocals are an identifiable and critical part of what mm. this band sounds like, rather than it just being Billy Joe Armstrong doubling himself. Right. It, it yeah. is like, that is a, that is a, that is a tone that you come to look for. And it's huge. A, a lot of the time, you know, like a, the bassist in a punk band is, you know, is really just there to play the root notes. And yeah. he has a real identity within that band. Oh yeah, for sure. And the other thing that I've noticed across the records, when they do reach for those harmonies, they tend to do it in a, I don't know if you would call them pivot notes, but the harmonies very often will stay on the same note and mm-hmm. the melody dances around underneath whatever that same note is that yeah. he's harmonizing with. It's very effective. Yeah, no, it's sort of a it's a it's a suspension thing. I, I hate to be too cruel about it, but a lot of the the pop punk bands from this era could not really perform live. Some of them could, but Green Day was definitely they were one of the exceptions. Like it, it's a, you know they didn't just have like the energy. Like they for the most part you know um, when they when they were on they could hold the notes and they could they could you know they could put on a really entertaining show. So Warning comes out in 2000. Again, we didn't really realize what it was signaling, but then along in 2004, we end up getting American Idiot.
I've never had a band yank my attention back <laughs> faster or more fiercely than Green Day did when this album dropped. I had pretty much stopped thinking about Green Day, to be honest. And I remember the conversation at the time when this came out was, first of all, who would have thought these guys would still be around? <laughs> right? Well, first of all, they were like 33 years. Right. I mean, it'd, been, it'd only been 10 years. Yeah. But at first it was like, wow, can you believe Green Day's still here? And then the, the other part of the conversation was, who would have thought that the most potent political album and you know, political statement of the year would come from Green Day? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I, I remember my reaction to this record being like, wow, this band feels really thematically revitalized, but at the same time, this record's all over the place. Uh -huh. And for a record that is now 20 years old and that has kind of entered the canon as like, this is this, you know, masterwork that was a howl of rage in a time of national conflict, not every idea on this record works perfectly and uh -huh. not every insight on this record lands i mean there's a track on this record called jesus of suburbia uh -huh. which like boy you know we'd already had american beauty <laughs> <laughs> like the subject had been picked over pretty heavily but like this record does really stand up and one of the reasons it stands up is one it still sounds very much like a green day record but two like they're thinking about the world as a whole would they write this this record this way if they were to make it today? No, but it's, it, it's very much of 2004, and the fact that we're celebrating its 20th anniversary speaks to its staying power. I mean, I remember on the ground there, I think there was a lot of ambivalence about this record. It's funny to sort of, to listen to it now and try to just appreciate it on a craft level, and it feels like just watching like the original Star Wars and clearing your mind of like all of the baggage of you know mm -hmm. the rest of that series and, and everything that's 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 come of it, which can feel like you know kind of a headache and sort of overwhelming. And when you listen to, the, to it that way, it really it, it does feel like a pretty like towering uh, achievement. I mean, concept albums can be a little bit self-serious, mm -hmm. a little plodding, a little like uh, uh, meandering, and it is just a lot of fun to listen to. But I do remember people having some feelings about like. You know, what really counted is political art, whether they were, you know, really engaging politically or just sort of like wearing it as a as a costume. Billy Joe would, I think, literally wear that George W. Bush mask on stage sometimes. And, um, you know, it's also like this moment where like, you know, you're having the sort of the great indie rock crossover where suddenly like Death Cab for Cutie and the Shins are on like Fox TV shows and stuff like that. Right. And it's just like everybody is all over the place trying to figure out like where are the lines anymore? What constitutes selling out? You know, what is the obligation of an artist to engage with what's happening uh, in the world? Like it's a, a record that's really rooted in these recent events around the Iraq war, around 9-11. Um, and around the sort of like end of history thing that was happening at the mm -hmm. turn of the millennium. And, um, you know, it's uh, it ends up on Broadway. And, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, it's like if you've never seen it, I really, really uh, recommend watching the clip from the Tonys of Billy Joe Armstrong coming out to introduce the cast of American Idiots performance. It's a bizarre moment. 
Hello. How are you? Hi. How are you doing up there? All right. Ah. Okay. I'm going to pretend I'm not reading right now. Ready? Uh, before we get started, I just want to say we have never been around so many creative and talented people as we have on Broadway. So far, so good.、Uh, He seems humbled by the proceedings and also a, a little ruffled by them. He seems, you know, like he makes a joke about sort of the artificiality of reading off of a teleprompter.、Uh, he's very thankful to his collaborators. He seems, you know, that part seems very heartfelt. And then he introduces the cast. It's my honor to give you the cast of American Idiot. Don't wanna be an American idiot. Don't wanna nation under the new media. But it is pristine.、Mm-hmm. It, it is like the moment in Wayne's World where the first time they shoot the show in an actual studio, <laughs> and there's that. It's like we're looking down on Wayne's basement, but that's not Wayne's basement, isn't that weird? <laughs> I don't know, man. It was、um, it, it, it was such a weird thing to to witness happening in in real time. Also, the band Dillinger Four、um, famously sued them for、uh, allegedly stealing the riff in the arrangement. I think they settled、yeah. out of court.、Mm-hmm. My memories of this moment are chaotic,、um, and I, <laughs>、yeah. I, I think. Well, yeah. To listen to it now, like there's almost like a little bit of a relief to just like sit back and be like, "This is a pretty good album." <laughs> yeah. The representative from California has the floor. Things that really stood out about this record was that it was a big stadium-filling rock band trying to meet the moment.、Mm-hmm. At, you know, to, to varying degrees of success, whatever you think of the record, and it is a very, very good record. It really stood out amid so much apolitical music. Yeah, there's a lot of bad political art、oh, by,、yeah. from from around that time. There's that Bright Eyes song when the president talks to God. That when、oh, when、yeah. Conor Oberst went on、uh, WTF later on, he like basically apologized for that song. <laughs> he was just like, "That song sucks." I know what I was trying to do, but like,、uh, it's you know, I can't listen to it now. It is telling that this record has persisted, where、yeah. some of the some of the other music that we're talking about did did not really. And I think you know, part of the reason is that like it, it, they were trying to meet the moment, but that wasn't the only thing they were doing. <laughs> it, you、yeah. know, there there was an Effort to make something a little bit—I hate to just use the word timeless because it feels like sort of a cliche—but you know, look at what happens. You know, like two years later, My Chemical Romance makes the Black Parade,、mm-hmm. another rock opera,、mm-hmm. another big、yeah. sprawling concept album that pulls in all different kinds of. Uh, musical influences and instrumentation. A lot of the like emo bands of the back half of the 2000s, you know, got on the sort of concept record train because you know somebody had kind of cut a path for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, this is not the only concept record we would get from Green Day. No. Either、oh uh, next、uh, as well.、Um, we do need to take a break,、uh, but when we come back, we'll talk about、uh, Post American Idiot Green Day, including the new album Saviors. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel, clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For twenty percent off your first purchase, go to viore.com/npr. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. It's all songs considered from NPR Music. I'm Robin Hilton. I'm here with NPR's Stephen Thompson and Dawood Tyler Amin. We're talking all things Green Day. We're up to 2009. They put out a new record called 21st Century Breakdown. It's uh, another sort of concept uh, rock opera album that I think really had some pretty interesting moments. I text the postcard sent to you Did it go through all my love to you You are the moonlight of my life Every night This is a band that did change it and has changed its sound a lot off and on over the years. And this is totally different. Yeah, and it's it's you know, it's thematically ambitious, it's musically ambitious, it's drawing on a lot of different styles, but you can also hear in this record the pressure to duplicate American Idiot. You know, this this is it followed that record by five years. That that is a very long gap between records for Green Day. I think the longest yet. The yeah. longest yeah. yet, and it you can feel listening to this record a little bit of the strain of that. I think American Idiot was maybe a bigger hit than they expected it to be. Yeah, certainly. And this one was also very successful, but mm-hmm. it, it feels like maybe what's sometimes been called the ACDC effect, where <laughs> a, a, a lot of commercial attention comes to the record that's sort of after a band's classic record. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting, and this is an entirely personal reflection, but this is where I started to drift away from Green Day. Mm-hmm. And and that's not to say, like, I listened to this record and thought it stunk. It just, I think, coming after American Idiot, I wasn't necessarily picking up what this record was putting down. And that's in part because at the time it came out, you know, Daoud has alluded several times to what was going on in music uh-huh. at the same time as these records. I was drifting more into like sad bastard folk music with, uh-huh. you know, a, a woman from Portland playing cello and <laughs> and a little and a little less of like Bon Iver was around this bon, time. Yeah, this is this is the yeah. rise of Bon Iver and a lot of what I was listening to was like sad man in cabin <laughs> <laughs> type stuff. And so the the grandiosity of of this record and the the like this is a record in three acts and here's the string section and here's this thing that sounds like it's out of a out of Sgt. Pepper and you know mm. that stuff wasn't necessarily speaking to me as much and so I wasn't like wasn't listening to this record over and over again the way I might have listened to other Green Day records, but revisiting it, you still hear a ton of craft conjures images of like what you think of when you think of Green Day. Yeah, the effort is definitely there, but it's one of the weird, it's weirdly one of the ones that feels a a little dated, and Mm -hmm. maybe it's just because it seems so out of step with, I mean, what the quote unquote rock bands that were like in vogue at the time we're not heading in this direction. Mm -hmm. It's like, it was, you know, that was a moment where like people were taking the idea of guitar rock and trying to sort of pull it inside out as much Mm -hmm. as possible. You know, like how many holes can we punch in this idea and still present in the form of of a rock band? Whereas this is, you know, what they're doing is, you know, is, is a very kind of classic move. The same way that American Idiot was sort of inspired 
by, you know, things like The Wall and, and you know, A Night at the Opera and these various sort of epic, you know, sweeping. Comedy. Uh, yeah, yeah, all of that. Yeah. Um, uh, it just, I don't get this one. I do get the, the idea that, okay, it sounds like they're just sort of trying to, uh, you know, carbon copy their way into their next record. Like, let's see if we can just recreate this this thing that we just did. And maybe it would have been better to just move on to the whatever the next next thing is. And maybe if we hadn't had American Idiot, this would, you know, 21st century breakdown would have been received a little bit differently. But there are moments when I listen to this record, like there's, there's a song called See the Light. Let us scratch the remove all other context uh, from this band and, and you just put this on and I hear and let's say I don't even know who the band is I would think well whoever this is is clearly at the peak of its <laughs> creative powers right now like this is this is so anthemic mm-hmm. so big and it's I don't know it's kind of incredible to me and if I'm able to just step back for a moment and just listen to it on its own mm. I, I don't know I think it sounds pretty incredible I mean, you know, I, I I think it's possible that, that they just sort of got a little dinged, maybe not commercially, but just sort of in the in the court of public opinion over time by uh, their trajectory in that in that moment, because so much had changed, obviously, around them since American Idiot came out. Right. Um, it's something that maybe plays a little better if you don't know it's Green Day. Mm. Twenty One Guns kind of slaps though. I like that song. <laughs> One, And super hooky, too. Yeah. That was their walkout music for their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So that comes out in 2009. And then comes 2012. And this this is when things start, I mean, for me, start to get a little murky (laughs) with with Green Day. They end up putting out three albums in a single year called Uno Dos Tre uh, that I found largely forgettable, Mm -hmm. sort of head scratchers, wasn't really sure what they were doing. At the time, and in retrospect, even Armstrong himself said that they have absolutely no direction to them, (laughs) that he was just being prolific for the sake of being prolific. Uh, But he also chalks it up to maybe he wasn't thinking very clearly at the time. Yeah, I mean, these three albums didn't just come out in a single year. They came out in a single season. Yeah. You know, they they dropped, you know, about a month apart starting in September of 2012. And they were supposed to to kind of culminate in this massive world kind of eras tour. Uh (laughs) Uh, And, you know, that was going to like bring Green Day back to gigantic stadium rocking prominence. And as that tour was about to begin, Billy Joe Armstrong went into rehab. And these albums ended up kind of landing with a little bit of a plop and not 
really getting a ton of radio play, not really being embraced by critics or fans. They sort of overserved the public in one way, but weren't able to serve them at all in another. And so these records really feel like a sign of a band that has done a bunch of really successful things and done a bunch of really successful things that sound different and that, that you know, form a, a surprisingly broad range of ideas. But then like, what do you pivot to next? Yeah. And I think most bands with really long careers find themselves in this spot at some point where it suddenly becomes very clear that you're not sure what your next move is. It bears saying, I suppose, that album concepts like this that roll out multiple full lengths separately with their own release dates, it's hard. It's yeah. like, that's that's a tough sell for a lot of people. Look at Justin Timberlake a year later. Mm-hmm. twenty one tw- the, the 2020 Experience Part 1 comes out, mm-hmm. and it's like, welcome back, JT. You mm-hmm. know, another career renaissance. He, you know, he's back on Fallon doing his greatest hits. Pitchfork, mm-hmm. love that record. Mm-hmm. Part 2... Everyone was just like, no thanks. <laughs> Sorry, dude. We yeah, don't we don't yeah. do this anymore. It yeah. was really like a breathtaking turn. It's like I, I don't know. I mean, uh, people have pulled it off. I guess Robin pulled it off, but it you know, not you, but yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm the, never pulling the vastly, vastly RBI could never. <laughs> but um, but it's it's worth it's worth talking when we talk about the, the eras of rock music history. Mm-hmm. In the sixties and seventies, you could put out our bands put out two, three albums a year. Sure. But there were fewer bands and yeah. fewer labels and fewer ways to hear music. And 2012, you're you're now well into the internet era. You're into the streaming era. The glut just hits different. I will say, if you're willing to take the time uh, <laughs> to, to comb through it, there there are a, a, a small handful of, of, of gems. There's a song called Stray Heart, I think on Dose that has that sort of classic you can't hurry love like mm-hmm. jangle pop bass line and it's just like really solid and sweet. You know, the other thing is that, like, it's probably fair to say that this sound was not cool, not in vogue mm. in, in 2012. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that a lot of really big guitar rock bands have struggled with in the last 10, 20 years or so. Like, when was the last time uh, arena-sized guitar rock really ruled the planet, right? right? I mean, it's it's been a long, long time. Well, I I remember days are gone. I I remember having the realization watching the MTV Video Music Awards, and and realizing like there was you never saw a guitar, Mm -hmm. or if you saw a guitar, it was like I always mix up sixty seconds of summer and five seconds to Mars. There's there's (laughs) there's five seconds of summer, five seconds of summer and and sixty minutes to Mars. Thirty minutes. I just want to keep you going and see how long it takes. How long it gets for me to name a band? Thirty seconds to Mars is the that's the Jared Leto band. But but I was thinking of the the kind of rocky boy band. That's five seconds of summer. Five seconds of summer. I think five seconds of summer produced the only guitar that I saw on stage mm-hmm. in an entire awards show telecast, and that was kind of happening around the time of these records, where rock music, straight up guitar rock music, was not as in vogue and when the biggest guitar rock bands 
are not necessarily putting out the records that they'll be remembered for, that's certainly a part of that. Now you, you get to the point, I mean, there are still tons of successful rock bands and there is an entire genre of rock music that is very popular that we don't often talk about on shows like this. I don't mean to suggest that rock music is as dead as a lot of music critics make it out to be. But when you look at what was enormously popular and what constituted kind of the musical monoculture, rock music had really fallen out of favor. Yeah. So uh, those records came out in 2012. Armstrong goes into rehab. He gets sober. They come back in 2016 with uh, a record called Revolution Radio. They also had some nice moments, but to me sort of overall felt like a sort of like an in-between ideas Mm -hmm. album. I don't know if that's how you... Uh, I'm in the same boat. And I think coming on the heels of a trilogy that people didn't pay attention to, this is this is an adrift. This is an adrift stretch for this band. Yeah. They had this song called Say Goodbye that I actually really liked. And, and we don't really need to spend a lot of time on Revolution Radio. Uh, but I could say that this song, Say Goodbye, sure sounded to me like it could have ended up on the record that came after this in 2020, Father of All, that begins uh, with the title track. I mean, just this blistering, full-throttle garage rock. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the record, Stephen, I think you mentioned earlier. It clocks in at a cozy 26 minutes long. (laughs) I don't know, like, I listen to this, it sounds like something Jack White would do to me. Mm -hmm. Not that Jack White would do to me, but (laughs) to me. (laughs) To me, it sounds like something Jack White would do, period. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and it's interesting. This is a polarizing record. Uh, There are a lot of Green Day fans, I think, having been conditioned for like uh, I use the word grandiose already but uh-huh. you know who are conditioned to a certain amount of grandiosity hearing a record that's a little scraped up a little scuffed up yeah. that is just kind of getting in and out in in a really efficient way and but is still experimenting with sounds this does not sound like they're going back to dookie no this sounds like they're they're, they're they've decided to pull from different sounds but go at you in a very aggressive full-throated way i actually i like this record i do too i, I find this one yeah. to be a fascinating experiment it's mm-hmm. like no matter what you think of it it is for one thing it's definitely an attempt and maybe their first ever to make their music really danceable mm-hmm. to, to really sort of consider groove in that way mm-hmm. um and it reminds me of something that was happening a lot in in indie rock in the early 2000s where there was a lot of really roughshod garage rock that was also pulling in elements of soul and motown mm-hmm. and glam and um, and and all of that stuff, and I do really respect a short record, especially after yeah. you've made two rock operas. Like, uh, <laughs> especially uh, when the, the this twenty first century breakdown is sixty nine minutes long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's unfortunately like the the there's there's two big strikes against this record right out of the gate. One is it it, it comes out in 
what is it, February 2020? Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, not the best timing. Yeah. Um, but the other was, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of an unforced error in the promotion, which is um, they the band tweeted a picture uh, of this billboard promoting the record, and it said, no features, no Swedish songwriters, no trap beats, 100% pure uncut rock. Now, I know what they were trying to say, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. I think to a lot of people, it was not the best look. It came off feeling a little coded in sort of a, a disco sucks kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it. I, I, it's a dig. Was it was Max Martin. Sure. Is that, yeah. The uh, a Swedish producer. I think the disco sucks is the is a perfect comparison, yeah. and it also it also just makes you sound old. Yeah, it's a you know it's it's an unfortunate thing because I actually it's I really appreciate an artist trying to stretch in this way at a point where there's really some stakes and uh, it could you know really turn people off. So that comes out in 2020, and uh, you know, David, earlier you mentioned that uh, this is a band like you feel like with just uh, certainly when you listen to those early records you're like well this could be it this yeah. this could be the this could be the final statement yeah and and i have felt that with a lot of their records and to that extent i don't know i guess that i was really expecting a new green day record um this year uh, or that i would love it as much as i've ended up loving this one called saviors that just came out Very Weezer to me. I mean, this is very mm-hmm. Island in the Sun uh, sort of uh, air Weezer to me. But and let the record show that Daoud was also humming "Beast of Burden." Yes, <laughs> yeah. and, and I was trying to place exactly which song from Dookie it's reflecting as well. Like this, this does feel like a little bit of a return to what people think of as the classic Green Day sound, too, right? Yeah, yeah. They've said that this is supposed to be of a piece with Dookie and uh, American Idiot, two records that are celebrating their. Round numbered anniversary. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and who knows how much they thought of that in advance, or you know how much it was sort right. of you know grafted on uh, in retrospect. But I'm still getting my head around this one. Mm-hmm. I think there there are moments that feel really energized. The first track, "The American yeah. Dream Is Killing Me," feels very classic in the mode of like a song like Minority or some of the you know the the, the earlier Dookie era stuff. On a lot of other songs, uh, including that one we just heard, I'm struck by how his voice sounds a little uncharacteristic. One thing that you can say about Billy Joe Armstrong is that, like, most of the time, there's nobody that sounds like that dude. It's like him, right. him and uh, uh, Tom DeLonge from, uh, <laughs> from Blink-182 uh, from, from Blink are sort of masters of that, like, 
just that California vowel rounding, the where are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's I've California, this... but it's also like, this song would sound better with a fake English accent. <laughs> well, it's funny, when I first started hearing Green Day back, I remember thinking, oh, this is some Brit punk band. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I thought I was hearing some sort of an accent in there. Sure. They probably listen to a lot of The Clash. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it's so that's the thing that I, I think I'm 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 trying to click into is that it, on a lot of the record he doesn't quite sound like himself at least the version of himself mm-hmm. that I feel used to. I think there's something interesting happening on this record and and I, I'm with you, David. I need to spend some more time with it. But after a few listens through, one of the things that I started sort of uh, tracking was that there's a real sense of nostalgia across this record. Uh, particularly, they they focus on the 1970s a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a song called Corvette Summer, for mm-hmm. example. Now, I don't know if any of you saw the film Corvette Summer <laughs> that came out. I saw it in the theater when it came out. I was, I was a little kid. Uh, it was Mark Hamill's, it was uh, Luke Skywalker. You know, he had just done Star Wars and it was uh-huh. his first film. He was going to show that he had a range mm-hmm. as an actor. It was a truly terrible movie, um, but also kind of a, a goody-batty sort of sure. film. The, the whole point of the film is uh, he, he p- plays this student uh, who has designed this custom Corvette, which was so cool, uh, and it gets stolen. And it's his journey to find the the, the Corvette that has been stolen. Corvette it's basically some, the plot of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yes, except uh, with a very cool gold-plated uh, Corvette. Uh, and then after this song, you, you get one called Susie Chapstick, which is mm-hmm. a reference to this accomplished athlete uh, in the 1970s who went on to become a spokesperson for Chapstick, and so she was known as Susie Chapstick, and there were these ads that ran in the 1970s. I remember seeing those as well. But time and time again, the thing that I was struck by is that this is not American exceptionalism. This, there's this sense of nostalgia across this record, but he's not looking back at these, these past decades and saying, wow, remember when America was great? <laughs> I feel like what he's saying on this record is, we were maybe never that great to begin with. Mm-hmm. And there's a real, like these songs just are just dripping with irony. And, you know, he's sneering through so many of them. And uh, I don't know, it's an, it's, an, it's an interesting line that he's walking. It's, that's, that's interesting, because that's, I think, the other thing that I, I'm still trying to figure out about this record. It, it, it's extra musically, I think, you know, uh, in, in the past few years, Armstrong has, has continued to be, you know, a pretty progressive public figure, you know, has spoken out for a lot of liberal causes and candidates and so forth. Within the text of his music, there is a reading of it, and I don't necessarily know if it's a a fair reading, but I think there's a way to read it as having sort of a mild reactionary streak, just Mm -hmm. in terms of the music of wanting to go back to basics, of sort of like feeling Mm -hmm. like there's a a sense that things used to be better. Strange Days Are Here to Stay from this record is is a great example. That's a song about feeling like the world's out of control, which it obviously is in many ways. But on a first listen, I could not tell if that was a song about hoping for a better future or about wishing to go back to the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe it's both. Maybe yeah. maybe it's about capturing, you know, some of that ambivalence 
and that sort of that chaotic feeling of being just sort of like, you know, stuck between worlds. You know, that study where most people think of the peak of the like the the pinnacle of music is whenever you were 19 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think I think some of it's that. Some of that curdling is also just like I have reached a certain age. I have been, you know, giving these commentaries and the world is still like this. Yeah. And so you're you're going to you're going to look at the world differently than you did when when you were 20 and there was a certain purity to the way everything felt. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, this makes me think of that, the, the idea that we have watched this band grow up in real time. And they closed this record, uh, Saviors, with a song called Fancy Sauce. Take me to the end Called the loony bin Somewhere I can rest my head And take it on the chin Flowers all in bloom In my rubber room Scratching at the wallpaper In my solitude Go, go, falling like a yo-yo Paradise for locals Medicate my soul I'm not crazy I heard this song and I thought, I wonder what Dookie era Billy Joe Armstrong would think if someone played this, stepped out of a time machine and played this song for him. Like, this feels sort of like a full circle moment Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And I guess that's why I wondered what 22-year-old Billy Joe Armstrong would think. Like, would he he listen to this and think, wow, I guess the world hasn't changed much. I haven't changed much, (laughs) even though it's been 30 years. He even invokes this cyclical idea with the idea of like we're falling like a yo-yo, right? Mm -hmm. It's bouncing down and falling and coming back up and Mm -hmm. falling again and coming back up and... But I think it's I think there's something crucial to the way that they were introduced to the world is is that they they were these depressed stoners with a little bit of a sense of humor rather than being introduced from the beginning as generational spokesmen. They kind of grew into that role. Mm -hmm. That's why it works so well, I feel like, because they never sought this out. Yeah. Here's the thing. How does a pop punk band grow up if your core aesthetic is about being sort of snotty and juvenile, at least from the beginning, Mm -hmm. then what does growing up even look like? Mm -hmm. I've thought uh, a lot in the past couple of months about a line from the Fall Out Boy record that came out (laughs) last year. Fall Out Boy, a band that was definitely influenced a lot by Green Day and in fact inducted them into the Rock and Roll Hall Mm. of Fame. But their record from last year, So Much for Stardust, has a great song called Fake Out. And there's a line on it that goes, I make no plans so none can be broken, which Mm. kind of crystallizes something about the bittersweetness of growing older is that your emotional life is a little less volatile. Mm-hmm. You experience fewer crushing lows, but also fewer ecstatic highs, and that's the trade-off. And that's maybe the thing that I'm thinking about the most. Listening to this band in 2024, I don't know. It's just like, it's sort of a miracle that it's still going. Mm-hmm. And um, and a little bit of that sort of like emotional kind of like middling out and and finding a sort of comforting spot in between the highs and lows of where your emotions used to take you is, you know, is a fine place to be at that point. So let's go out on on Fancy Sauce (laughs) from Saviors. Uh, A really great record from a great band and um, 
Thanks so much to Dao Tyler Mean and, and Stephen Thompson for both of you sitting and just nerding out about this <laughs> band. Um, it, it was great to revisit the catalog and, and hear, yeah. hear all your thoughts. This has been fun. Thanks, Roman. Yeah. And I'll just say that uh, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends about it. Leave us a review uh, in Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Uh, Subscribe to our newsletter we, at npr.org yes. <laughs> slash newsletters. Yes. I was going to say, uh, we, we have a newsletter that Stephen writes for. Uh, npr.org slash music newsletter is the way to get that. And also, we love feedback on the show. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, anything at all, drop us an email. We're at allsongs at npr.org. Uh, all right. And for NPR Music, I'm Robin Hilton. It's all songs considered. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. 